But you understand what I mean. We continue to build on what they have done before. And every single one of them stand cheering us on today to run the race that's in front of us. And last week, as we talked about the table and why, why are we changing our church logo to be a table? And what does that mean? And I don't have time, obviously, to recap everything that I shared with you last week. And that's what that letter and the video that we sent to you was all about uh, this past week. But the table is about becoming the kingdom community that puts God on display to the world around us. We live in a polarizing world. We no longer listen to what someone else is saying because we're already forming a response in our minds or we're already sure that we formed the right opinion and we don't need to listen. We dehumanize the people that we deem as opposite of us and the table fights against that. The table forces us to stay, to listen, to hear, to value, to honor, to love. And it's about relationships. It's about maintaining the unity of the spirit. We use the phrase in our culture often, come to the table, come to the table. And when we use that phrase, we're talking about working together, brainstorming together, compromising, building a relationship. That's what that phrase is used for. And that's what this means to us. And last week we talked about coming to the table starts with mercy. None of us come to the table except for the mercy of God. The only reason any of us have even been invited is mercy. And yet we need to continue to receive and overflow with mercy, with honor, and with love. And last week, I had great hopes of putting together some devotions to put on social media for you. I'll just tell you now, I have great hopes in 2021 to have a daily devotion that centers around this concept by, of the table um, and that we will send out by email or through social media. And I want us to continue to look at what this means. But if you wrote these scriptures down last week, Exodus 24 is this strange story when the leaders, the, the, the key leaders of Israel are called up on the mountain. They see God, they eat food, and God doesn't destroy them mercy. It's a picture of the mercy of God. Second Kings chapter six, the armies of an invading country come into Israel to destroy Elisha and Israel. And the Lord strikes them with blindness and Elijah, Elisha leads them right into the capital city of Samaria. And when their eyes are open, the king is like, should we kill them? He's like, no, feed them and send them home. What a picture of loving our enemies. And Nehemiah chapter eight, we talked last week about the people being so overwhelmed and Nehemiah saying to them, no, today's not a day for weeping. It's a day for celebrating because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it's the receiving and the giving of these things that are so absolutely important to us. And the last one, Psalm 23, I alluded to this already, but God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. This idea of our head being anointed with oil, when we're in the presence of our enemies, the idea of sitting at a table is the last thing on our minds. What about our enemies? And God says, no, I'm your comfort. I'm your honor. Your identity's in me. I am anointing your head with oil and your cup overflows. How do we know, we talked a lot last week about receiving mercy, receiving honor, receiving love from God so that we can give it to others. How do we know when we've received mercy from God. It's in the overflow. It's in the overflow. I mean, I could sit here and cry and be like, oh God, I thank you for loving me. Oh, thank you for your mercy for me. And that's a level of receiving God's mercy. But when it shows up in my relationships, that's when I know I've received it. And I don't have to cry. In fact, I can be super annoyed at the person that needs mercy right in front of me. But by choosing to act in mercy towards them, I've demonstrated it's the mercy of God flowing in and flowing out. It's the overflow. Honor, love, and mercy. And if we're not seeing them in our lives, and I know we'll be like, well, but I, I honor that person. And I honor this person. But Jesus said, hey, even the tax collectors do that. You know, they honor those people they deem worthy of honor. They love those who love them. But in my kingdom, at my table, you love your enemies. 
And he doesn't mean have warm, fuzzy feelings to your enemies. You don't have to cry when you think about your enemies, but we do have to act in love towards them. And that's the overflow. That's how we sit at a table in the presence of our enemies because we need to receive because we've got something to give. If I don't sit at the table in the presence of my enemies, I will cut my enemies up. I will destroy them. And that is not why I'm there. Back in 2018, the vision for Restoration Church um, the Lord gave me 10 points, and I put this in writing for you. Um, you should have it somewhere, I hope, or you should have seen it at some point. But these were our prayer points. And, you know, they tell you when you're presenting vision or you're presenting, you know, the mission of a church, you got to whittle it down. You can't, like, and so I'm like, 10 things, Lord, really? Like, how in the world, like, it would be too broad, like 10 different things. Um, restoring people to God. I think we know what that means. It's bringing people back into relationship with him. Restoring people to people, whether that's marriages, families, friends, church people, it's about living unoffendable. That's what that's all about. The restoration of orphans and widows and the marginalized. And why do we separate those? Because James did. James says, this is true religion. You take care of those who are victims and who cannot take care of themselves. That's the mark of the kingdom. Restoration for our city. And we have tried to become a church that works for the peace and prosperity of our city. To model it in our individual lives, to model it corporately. And, you know, it sounds great in theory. Let's be a church that works for the peace and prosperity of our city. Well, what if our city asks us to do something that we don't want to do? Are we still willing to work for the peace and prosperity of our city? I don't know if you know that the city has an ordinance where you can only water on certain days of the week. You can't water your lawn every day. You're supposed to do it every other day. And so ignorance is no excuse for the law. You could actually be fined if you water on a day because it's a city ordinance. But what if I'm like... You know, I don't, I'm not going to follow that. I want, my, I want my grass to grow, so I'm going to water whenever I want to water. Am I working for the peace and prosperity of my city? I mean, does the Bible say, thou shalt water thy lawn whenever thou wilt? No, it doesn't. So they're not asking me to do something that violates the law, but yet it's easy for us to sit in this room and say, yeah, we want to work for the restoration of our city, yeah. But when the rubber meets the road, is there an overflow in our lives, our daily lives? Are we really working for the peace and prosperity of our city, even at our own personal expense? Restoration for small communities is about planting a church in every single community in South Dakota. It's about the forgotten people in forgotten places. Because the drug use, the alcohol use, the suicide rate is higher per capita in some of these small communities. The only difference is we've just ignored them. And it's time for the church to not say to the small community, hey, just drive over here and join us. It's time for us to go to them and say, hey, let's plant something right where you are. And that's a part of what we want to do at Restoration Church. This idea of racial restoration. Oh, I know this is a hot topic, but I put it on paper in 2018, and I didn't even know what it was about. And I guarantee you the Lord is still calling us to work for restoration between black and white, restoration for Native Americans, restoration for immigrants and foreigners. He is calling us to be a part of this. He's calling us to be a part of class restoration. It's not the government's job to take care of the poor. That's our job as the church to use what we have because everything I have is his. It's from him. I didn't get anything because of me. It's all because of him. I know it looks like I earned it. I know it looks like I worked for it. But guess what? The scripture's clear. It's all from the mercy of God. It's all on the grace of God. Gender restoration has nothing to do with the idea in our culture right now of gender identity. This has mostly to do with the way women have been treated in the church. It has to do with those in the church who have, one, been victimized by those in authority and then made to feel shame and guilt when they've tried to bring it to the light. It's about women who have not been able to use the giftings God has given them in the church because of a go-home church culture. 
That's not okay. And we're going to be a part of bringing restoration to that. It's about generational restoration. In our world today, there is a disrespect for the older generation. And there is a loss of value for them and what they have to offer us. The younger generation, listen up. The scripture says that it is a blessed thing to have gray hair and you should listen to what they have to say. I guarantee you someday when you maybe think, well, I'm, this is like the 15th time I've heard grandpa's story. I guarantee you a day will come when you'll wish you could hear it one more time. So listen. But older generation, this goes both ways. And it's time to treat with value and respect and trust this younger generation and start putting the baton in their hands. We want to be a church that young people want to attend. One of our dreams as leaders is we want to be a church that teenagers attend. Oh, but pastor, I don't know. I don't know anything about that, those electronic devices stuff. I don't. If we want to be a church that interacts with young people, then we better figure out how technology works because it's their language. And so it's easy to say, oh yeah, we want to be a church that, that teenagers attend, uh, but we want the teenagers to like us and like our methods. And it's time to get it in their hands and say, you teach us, you show us, you help us. And that goes both ways. And that's what we're going to be about, that generational restoration. And denominational restoration has been in my heart all my life. I am so tired of this idea that the, the lowest common denominator separates us from the table. Meaning if you, oh, you believe that one thing over there, well, we can't now be at the same table because you believe that one thing. And there is such a demonic thing that tries to isolate and distance ourselves from other people in the body of Christ. The cross is central. Everything else, secondary. And we have got to find a way to come to the table with brothers and sisters in Christ and live this out. And this list of 10 things seems overwhelming. But let me sum it up with the words of Scott McKnight. You may not know who Scott McKnight is. He's a, a theologian, a scholar. Uh, he's a, a a seminary professor, but he wrote a book recently that I devoured in 36 hours. I knew it was coming because I had heard him talk about it. It's called Tov, T-O-V, Tov. And Tov is just the Hebrew word for good. God created the heavens and the earth and he said it was good, Tov. God is good, Tov. When God and Moses are on the mountain, God causes his goodness, the root tov, to pass before him. And he's talking about the church culture today that we have. And in our church culture, it's very toxic. It's not so much our beliefs. It's not our mission statements or our vision statements. It's our behaviors that are toxic. And we have got to develop a goodness culture. And this is how he describes it. Any church that claims connection to Jesus and any church that wants to follow Jesus absolutely must have a heart for the wounded and the marginalized. Sadly, many churches lack empathy and therefore lack compassion. Here are some examples of people who may experience a lack of empathy and compassion. As we commit ourselves to pursuing a tove culture in our churches, these can become opportunities for us to resist such actions by forming a culture rooted in empathy and compassion. See, it's easy for us to say, yeah, we want to have compassion on people. But he's going to give some specific answers or examples to show us whether or not the, where the, when the rubber meets the road, whether we're putting this into practice. So first, women who are not permitted to use their gifts in the church. Women and others who are not believed when they share about abuse at the hands of church leaders, whether women or children. Widows who seem to slide from hearty participation to the back pew or even out the door when their husbands pass away. Widowers who, though not as numerous as widows, find themselves lonely in the church. The physically challenged who sometimes can't even get into the church building because the facility doesn't meet code. The depressed, the anxious, and the obsessive compulsive who are reluctant to share their private struggles. The elderly who are often ignored or met with impatience. The divorced who feel they don't belong or are being judged. Those from different economic levels who sometimes cannot participate in church-wide events because of a lack of resources. Those who differ ethnically or racially from the mainstream, dominant, or privileged culture in the church. 
and others who stand out from the prevailing demographics of the church. Churches that follow Jesus don't simply take up the cause for one specific group. They develop a culture in which they hear the cries of all the distressed, all the wounded, and they respond with compassion. I know as a church, we can't save them all, but we can save the one in front of us. And we have got to be better at hearing the cries of the one in front of us. As churches, we look for missions trips to go on so that we can go out there somewhere to help the poor and to help the hurting and to help the lonely. And in our daily lives, we regularly pass by people who are crying out for it and we just don't hear it because we don't have an ear for it. Cultivating a table culture. That's what I want to talk about today. Cultivating a table culture culture. I I don't want this to just be a mission statement. I don't want this to just be a picture. I want this to become what makes us different as a church. This doesn't make us better. It makes us different. This is who we are. And who we are may not be what someone else wants or what someone else needs. And that's okay. And that's why we have churches on every street corner in Huron. Sometimes three, they cluster. I don't know why they do, but they do. It's crazy. And it doesn't mean that we're more right or they're more right in the body of Christ. It's going to take all of us doing what God puts in our heart to do to reach every single person in this community. And until every single person in the Huron community has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our work is not done. And as a church, we have spent several years trying to define who we are and who we are not, casting vision, defining our mission and our core values. But culture, culture matters most. And culture is a hard thing to define. It's really about our beliefs and our attitudes and our traditions and our practices. Culture is about our behaviors, Because the culture of our church or the culture of your home or the culture of your workplace is actually how you're behaving. It's not what you claim. Because you have values that you claim at work. Okay, you might have mission statements at work and core values at work. But the way that people actually behave in the environment, that's the culture. Same thing in a church. It doesn't matter what we put on the wall. How we behave is our culture. By the way, parents, I don't care what you say to your kids, how you behave in the home is the culture, and that's what your kids will develop from. So you can talk to them about respect, but if we live with disrespect, if when we come home from work, it's disrespect about our boss, disrespect about our coworkers, disrespect about this person, disrespect about that person, that's the culture. And that's what will influence our children more than anything we preach or say. And so it's not enough to just have the wording. Last week was about the wording. We got the wording right, and it's not even done. Some of you, you may have fell asleep halfway through the letter because you're like, wow, the table, that's a lot of stuff. Pastor Tom, can you just make it a little more succinct? No, I really can't because the table is everywhere in the scripture. But today is about more than the wording It's about the culture. It's about putting it into practice in our daily lives and coming together in this type of kingdom community that puts God on display. If you have a Bible, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and I've got 30 whole minutes to take you through it, and I think we're going to make it. Praise the Lord. One of the things I'm always guilty of is trying to give you too much information. All of the information I just gave you, I've given to you over the last two years. If you're new, it was all brand new. If you were old, it should have been in some form a review. Um, Those documents are available on our website or on our Facebook pages, on our Slack groups. Um, We can make them, we can refresh them and make them new available, but they are out there for you. So in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is going to tell a story 
what we call a parable in the Bible. And in fact, in Mark's version of the, the story that Jesus is about to tell, Jesus in Mark's version says, if you can't understand this, how can you understand anything about the kingdom? Teaching us that this parable is a foundational parable, foundational truth or foundational story in the kingdom of God. So Matthew chapter 13, we're going to pick up in verse 3. If you've got your Bible, great. If you don't, it's up on the screen for you. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell along rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Now, I don't know a lot about farming, but we live in a farming community, and I do know this, soil matters. And no matter how hard you work as a farmer, if you've got bad soil, you are not going to get a good crop. And a lot of your work needs to be get the soil to be the best you can. But in some regions, clay soil or rocky soil is just going to, I mean, one side of the road and the other side of the road, the crops can look totally different and it's not the work ethic of the farmer. It's all about the soil. And that's what Jesus is implementing here in this story. So the disciples came and said, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. I don't have time to go into that, but Jesus is not being as mean as you think, okay? I'll just guarantee you this is a Jewish idea, a Jewish concept, and he's not being mean. You have to take my word for it today. <laughs> Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Here it is. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, hard. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen, then, to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. In Mark's version of this, Jesus adds the words, take heed to how you listen. Sometimes we take this parable and we talk about how important it is to, to share the gospel everywhere we go because just scatter the seed because you never know what kind of soil it's going to fall on. And I'm not going to say that truth is not true, but the parable that Jesus is telling is all about the condition of the soil of our lives, making sure it's good soil. So when the message comes, we receive it and we produce a crop. That's culture. Making sure the culture of my life, the soil of my life is powerful or is ready to receive the word. Here's the thing. The word of God is powerful. Amen. But in the wrong soil, it can't do anything. So guess what? I could spend 60 hours preparing a message today. But if the condition of the heart 
of those of us that are going to hear it, even myself included, isn't good, it won't be effective. I don't care who we put up here. I don't care who's your favorite tele-evangelist. Let's invite them in. Oh, come give us a word. And that's the thing. We just keep running to the next speaker. We run to the person we want to hear. But if the soil of our hearts is not good, it won't work. We can memorize the word. We can recite the word. We can put the word on the wall. We can go to Hobby Lobby and find the right scripture verse thing to put on the wall. But if the soil of our hearts isn't right, the fruit won't be produced. And the measurement of the, the kingdom is the overflow. The overflow. The fruit, 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. So what can we do to cultivate good soil? I'm assuming you want to have good soil because you're here. You tuned in. You want good soil. So here you go. Three things. That if, you, if we are going to have good soil so that when the word comes, it produces fruit, here's what we need. One, we need water. By the way, this may not be scientifically right. So Stan, if I'm wrong on any of this soil stuff, you just <laughs> And Deb, if you're watching, I don't, don't text me. I don't want to hear it. Here's what we need for good soil spiritually. You need water. The hardness of our hearts has to be broken up with the water of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says here that they lack understanding. Whenever you get the message of the kingdom, you're like, Pastor Tom, I don't understand what the table means. Here's what I'd say to you. Begin to ask the Holy Spirit to water your heart and give you understanding. Any message of the kingdom, anything I preach, anything you read in a book, anything you read in the Bible, you don't understand it, go to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, help me to understand what this means. Now, sometimes the understanding comes into our lives in a part of our lives, but we don't make the connection of where it applies to all of our lives. Does that make sense? So we have this truth, we have this understanding about something and we're like, yes, I love that truth. Sort of like mercy. Oh, we, oh, the mercy of God is so amazing. But then like the unmerciful servant, we go out and find someone who did something wrong to us and we throw them into prison until they pay their debt. So we've not understood mercy even though we cried when we understood the mercy of God towards us. That's a lack of understanding. And the only way that the hardness of our hearts can be broken up is through the water of the Holy Spirit. We tend to look at this concept as all or nothing. So either I have a hard heart or I don't have a hard heart. But what if it's possible that there could be parts of our heart that are hard and parts of our heart that aren't? So we're bearing fruit in some area of our lives, but there's a hard area that the Holy Spirit really wants to rain on. And so when we hear a message or we hear a word, don't just assume, oh yeah, I'm doing that one. Or, oh yeah, I don't need that one. Say, Holy Spirit, is there any area of my heart, any area of my life where this needs? You know what that's called? That's called being teachable. It's being able to learn from just about anybody at any time. And that's something that our culture doesn't do real well. But we want to be a church that does that. I want to be one who is not quick to refute or quick to criticize or quick to dismiss others. I want to sit at the table and I want to ask questions and I want to see if that fits any area of my life. See, we think of things like favoritism or racism or some of these big things that are in our culture right now and we're like, well, I don't have any of that in my life anywhere. Really? No favoritism anywhere? No racism anywhere? No, anything in my heart that I have to say, Holy Spirit, reign here just to make sure that I don't have something, some arrogant attitude, some misconceived belief, some ignorance that I've just never learned in any area. And we dismiss messages of the kingdom because we allow the hardness of our hearts. Hosea chapter 10, sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up the unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. 
You have planted wickedness, you have reaped evil, and you have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended upon your own strength. My fear for the American church right now is there are areas of our hearts that are hard and we will not let the Holy Spirit reign on those areas. How do you break up the unplowed ground of your hearts? You ask him. Holy Spirit, show me those areas and break them up. You know how else you do it? You sit at a table with someone who thinks totally different than you and you ask them questions. Help me see something from your perspective. You don't sit there so that you can convince them they're wrong. You sit there to hear so that you can make sure there's no hard areas of your heart that need to be broken up. Ooh, that was good, Pastor Tom. Thanks for that. Okay, Hebrews chapter six. Land that drinks in the rain. The rain referring to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit speaks, don't harden your hearts. That's what Hebrews is saying. When the Holy Spirit speaks, don't harden your heart. But land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it and produces a crop that is useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Every word you hear and read, Holy Spirit, water this thing into my heart. Help me to see, show me where this needs to be applied to my life. Not show me if this needs to be applied to my life. Where does this need to be applied to my life? All right, so the second one, we need water. We need the Holy Spirit. The second one, we need fertilizer. We need fertilizer. Yep, manure. When I was getting this ready, I thought, oh, praise God. I get to just shovel manure into people's lives. I'm going to give you, you need this in your life. And I, my ministry is to just dump all this crap on you so you can grow in God. And honestly, that's how a lot of the church lives. We just dump stuff on people and it's for, they need it. It's for their good. So it's really not about that. But here's the thing. You don't have to go looking for fertilizer. You have to ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life. But this one, you don't even have to ask. I guarantee you this week, fertilizer is going to come to you from every angle. <laughs> it's going to come from your spouse. It's going to come from your kids. It's going to come from your boss and your coworkers. It's even going to come from me before we finish this sermon. There's going to be fertilizer everywhere. I just know it because in this world, you're going to have trouble. But what we do with it is what's going to matter the most. And here's the thing. We need it. We need it because we won't grow without it. There will not be good soil in my heart without fertilizer. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a non-conforming sparrow who decided not to fly south for the winter. However, soon the weather turned so cold that he reluctantly started flying southward. In a short time, ice began to form on his wings and he fell to the earth in a barnyard almost frozen. A cow passed by and dumped on the little sparrow. The sparrow thought this was the end, but then the manure warmed him. It defrosted his wings. Warm and happy, able to breathe, he started to sing. Just then, a large cat came by. Hearing the chirping, he investigated the sounds. The cat cleared away the manure, found the chirping sparrow, and promptly ate him. The moral of the story is, not everyone who dumps on you is your enemy, and not everyone who helps clean it off is your friend. Think about that. Not everyone who dumps on you is your enemy, and not everyone who helps clean it off is your friend. That, I heard that story when I was in Bible college. There's very few things I remember from Bible college chapter, but that story has stuck with me forever. Not just because he used different words. Um, in the story, but because the truth of that story. We talk about living unoffendable toward people, toward God, 
We live in a society when things don't go our way, we get angry at God, we get offended at God because our circumstance, I, I've served you, you owe me this. I mean, this, it's easy to fall into that trap. We get offended with people that don't treat us right, that disrespect us, that think differently than us, that didn't give us the time of day. And we live in a culture that is so easily offended. And we have to fight against this. And the way we fight against it is remembering we need this. If I walk through life and I'm never slighted and I'm never mistreated, I'm going to think, I'm doing all right. But the moment I get mistreated, it brings to the surface all of the things I was able to hide and push down when everything was going good. So when you, the next time you're in a fight with your spouse and you make me so angry, remember that's not true. Because that anger was already in your heart, it just came to the surface and your spouse just happened to be the one shoveling the manure at the time. Okay, so... Take ownership for your own stuff that's going on in your heart and your life. Other people don't cause it to happen to us. People that don't know how to drive do not cause us to have road rage. The road rage was in our hearts, and they just helped bring it to the surface. Thank God for them. You need them. Because otherwise, we would all think we're perfect, and we're ready for the chariots of fire to stop by today and pick us up and take us home. We're not. Now, just because we've got junk in our lives doesn't mean we're not at the table. We're at the table because of mercy. We're at the table because of his honor and his love. But don't think because we're at the table, we're all done. And if we're going to have good soil, we've got to respond to the fertilizer in the right way. Romans 8, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have called, been called according to his purpose. That is on a Hobby Lobby wall hanging right there. I don't know why I'm being so hard on Hobby Lobby today. But man, God works for the good. Now look at the next part. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you know how we get conformed to the image of his son? Well, he learned obedience through what he suffered. James tells us, consider it joy when you face different trials and temptations because those conform you to the image of God. Peter says it through the fiery trials. Paul says it throughout the Romans. Jesus himself told his disciples, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. It's those moments of our lives. It's those fertilizing moments that actually bring out what needs to be brought out in our lives. It makes good soil. But if we harden our hearts, if we blame the other person, if we know I only did it because of them, guess what? The, the hardening of our hearts produces these little rocks like calcium deposits everywhere. And that's why persecution and trouble causes us to fall away. But here's the thing. We don't stop going to church. We don't stop reading the Bible. It just doesn't bear any fruit in our lives. That's the danger. We still show up every Sunday morning. We still read Bible. We still, we still put little verse images up on our Facebook page. But it's not bearing fruit in my life. And that should cause us to say, Lord, help me deal with the fertilizer in my life. We love it when Joseph is like, oh, brothers, God meant this for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How many of us, though, in our daily lives are living that out in the overflow moments? When people mean it for our evil, are we saying, but God intends this for good? No, we're like, you evil person, I'm... And you don't have to wait for the emotions. If you're waiting for the emotions to change, good luck. I'm, I mean, I know this won't sound real spiritual, but there are still people in my life that when I see them coming, none of you in this room or none of you watching online, I guarantee, but um, I see them and the, the desire to run to the next aisle comes. Yeah, I know, none of you are as unspiritual as me, but that's what happens. But the choice of what I'm going to do in that moment when the feeling says this. That's what means everything. And that's what we have to deal with. Hebrews chapter 12 says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. He allows these hardships so that we are treated like children and we grow up like him. And as we go through this manure spreading season, whether we are going to be thankful 
or complaining really makes the difference, doesn't it? This last week, and um, I'll send it out in the, a message later on today, but I was reading through a version Bible reading plan called Tilling the Soil of Your Heart. It's seven days. I'd challenge you to read it this week. And I'll send out the link. You'll be able to find it. But listen to this. Thanksgiving aligns our thoughts and emotions with the reality of God's goodness in a world wrought with the lies about the character of God. It breeds joy and trust rather than entitlement and negativity. With each declaration of thankfulness, you dig a shovel into the hard, rocky soil of your heart and churn it over until it becomes receptive to the fullness of God and filled with the fruit of the Spirit. But after meditating on Psalm 107, I realized that my lack of thankfulness is a symptom of not spending enough time encountering God's wonderful character rather than a core issue in and of itself. Tilling the soil of my heart through thankfulness requires I set aside time to simply experience God's goodness and love because everything he does is by grace. My natural response to his character will always be one of thanksgiving. I would say don't just set aside time for it, but every moment of every day find something to be thankful for. Find something to say God is good even in the midst of this moment. The third one. Okay, so we need water. We need fertilizer. We need death. We need death. Death provides nutrients to the soil. And there's a reason Jesus says, come, die. Die to yourself. Because when we don't die to ourselves, all kinds of thorns, thorns of self-preservation, thorns of, uh, you know, giving for me, selfishness, all of these things grow up in our lives when we refuse to die. And I believe the reason there is so much antagonism in our world today is that no one is willing to die. James chapter 1. What is the source of all of the fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it from them. You don't, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Don't think of it just as pleasure. Think of it as ease. And think about how much of our prayers are all about my life being easier. Instead of God being glorified in it. Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And again, that's a great wall hanging, but what about when I just want to give someone a piece of my mind? Or what about when I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do and I want to save it for myself and I want to be selfish and I want to be selfish with my money and my time and my energy and I, it's all about me? That's where the rubber meets the road here. That determines the culture of our lives. And so, the world, the word, excuse me, doesn't bear fruit in our lives because it's being choked out by thorns. Selfishness, self-righteousness, self-preservation. And the question that we need to ask is, am I willing to die? If you're like me, you know that everyone else needs to die more than me, right? More than you. I mean, we would never say that out loud, but we're of the good people, right? I mean, we go to church. We're the good ones, the ones that don't go to church, the ones that don't want anything to do with God. They're the ones that need to die. I don't need to die. And yet the apostle Paul says, I crucify my flesh. How often? <laughs> Daily. The apostle Paul, okay? Scripture, third heaven guy. He did it every day. I don't think we're exempt. The example of it comes from Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, 
Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The culture of death is what Jesus modeled for us. And he didn't do it so you and I wouldn't have to die to ourselves. He did it so we could die to ourselves. And there's far too much self, self-interest, self-preservation, pride in our lives that keeps the word from being fruitful. Again, fruitful meaning the overflow. Not how many people am I loving, but where does my love stop? Not how many people am I honoring, where does my honor stop? See, Jesus emptied himself. That's a, man, that is a tall order. And I know that I'm not there yet. One more quote, and then we're going to close. I read a book a long time ago by a man by the name of Wayne Cordero. And I read a book, he went through a similar experience as me, but it led me to another book that he wrote called Sifted. And it's about walking through the hard seasons of life. And Wayne, pastors in Hawaii, God bless his soul, and uh, suffering for Jesus there in Hawaii. And he built a mega church. And they started multi-sites and having all these churches. And then about 20 or so years in, the Lord called him to go be a campus pastor, the mega church pastor. You go be a campus church pastor at one of these small churches. So he did. And uh, there was a sifting process, and then some of the pastors in the town got angry with him. He was preaching a watered-down message. It was his personality. He was stealing their sheep, and they were going to have a meeting, and he was, of course, going to fight and say, you know, guys, this is not why I'm here. And And this is what he says the Lord said to him. And then he teaches us how to live in these seasons, and this is so good and so hard. The reason, this is the Lord speaking to him, the reason why there's so much antagonism among the leadership of this community is that no one is willing to die. And I'm asking you not to use any defense. Be silent, receive what they say, and die instead. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus who when before his accusers was silent. There will be no victory until someone willingly chooses to die instead of win. But God, why do I have to go first, right? Why can't they go first? This is what Wayne says. Our encouragement is that rather than fighting the season of sifting, you learn the language of God, that you cooperate with what he's doing. Keep pressing the weight that you're holding, even though you feel like quitting. God has promised to give you just enough assistance to lift the weight while still building the necessary depth of character and strength that he intends you to develop to develop in you. God will do something through you when you first allow him to do something in you. Bow your heads and pray with me, if you would. The next few moments in this room are not going to dictate for sure how well we live out the fruit of what I've just shared with you, with us. Really, it's going to be how much we allow this to settle into our hearts tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and keep coming back to it. Again, I truly believe that everyone that's here desires to cultivate good soil in your heart where the word of God bears fruit. And it bears fruit that stretches out from the table 30, 60, and 100 times where it reaches every person that you encounter, whether they're your friend or your foe. But the only way that's going to happen is if we learn to invite the water of the Holy Spirit into our lives regularly. Not saying, Holy Spirit, does this word need to be something in my life? But where does this word need to be in my life? We need to be quick to listen. We need to be slow to speak, slow to defend ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to reign on every part of our hearts. We have to invite that. We also have to allow the fertilizer that we experience in life to do its job. We need to, in those hard moments, say, God, how are you using this to shape me? And we need to focus on his goodness and what he's done for us, and what he's doing in us, even as it seems like another shovelful of manure is being heaped upon us. We need to allow the fertilizer to do its work. And 
third, we need to choose death daily. The death of self, the death of self-interest, the death of self-preservation, of self-righteousness. If Jesus could do it, and I guarantee you, he was one person that never needed to do it. But he modeled for us that this is how we overcome evil. This is how evil gets stopped in our society. People willing to die. Overcome evil with good. And maybe the reason that evil is on a rise in our society isn't because that's just what's gonna happen in the last days. Maybe it's because the love of God's people is growing cold. Maybe it's because we're not choosing to die and let overcoming that evil with a goodness culture. The table, I believe, can be a catalyst for revival in our city, in our state, and in our nation. But just being able to say the right words is not gonna be enough. If you and I are gonna overflow with mercy, if we're gonna overflow with honor, if we're gonna overflow with love, then we have got to regularly allow the Holy Spirit to cultivate the soil in our hearts, to rain on it, to let the fertilizer do its work and to choose to die to ourselves every single day. If we're not gonna do that, then we're gonna have a nice logo, but we're not gonna bear the fruit that God has planned since the foundation of the world for our church to bear. And the only way the culture of Restoration Church changes is when the culture of my life changes, when the culture of your life changes. And so Holy Spirit, again, we say, we are yours. Every dream, every desire, every hope, everything, we surrender to you. We yield to you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to reign on our hearts today. Show us every area of our hearts that has become hard. Show us where this word needs to penetrate. Show us not just now, but give us an ear to hear you in the midst of conversations this week when we're allowing the hardness of our hearts to, to, to cause us to speak things that we shouldn't speak or to type things that we shouldn't type or to, to do things that we shouldn't do. We want to see the hard areas of our hearts that need to be broken up. Holy Spirit, make us aware. Holy Spirit, help us to allow the troubles, the trials, the difficulties that we will encounter this week Help us to allow them to have their work in our lives, producing the type of soil that's going to cause your word to even bear more fruit in us. And help us to choose daily to die to ourselves. Oh, God, we trust you. You demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus to this earth. Forgive us for not trusting you with our enemies. Forgive us for not trusting you with just the rotten circumstances of our life right now. God, forgive us for not trusting you fully. If you didn't spare your son, why would we allow ourselves to think you would hold anything else back? Your word says that we lack no good thing if we put our trust in you. So God, we put our trust in you today. Holy Spirit, let it finish its work in each and every one of us, I pray. God, I pray over this body today. I pray your blessing. Holy Spirit, fill them with you, the fruit of your love. Bless them, keep them, cause your face to shine upon them, be gracious to them. God, lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for